Let's pray. Father, we continue our worship now by coming to that, which is to have centrality in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions, and certainly our gathering together here today. And that is worship through the preaching and the teaching and the hearing and the application of your word. And we thank you for that because you are our creator and you are no under no obligation to us. You are under no obligation to your creatures unless you place an obligation upon yourself. You would be well within your rights, Father, to withdraw your voice, to, to uh, take your word away, and yet you do not, and indeed you tell us that your word will remain forever, that your word will endure forever. And we thank you for that, Father, because that is an act of your grace. And help us, Father, to realize this gift you've given us. You have provided for not only our salvation through your Son, Jesus Christ, but you have given us what we need and all we need for godliness through your word. So as we read it now and we study it and we think through it, Sanctify us by the truth. Your word is the truth. And may everything we do, both individually and as a corporate body, as a church, be done according to your word, that we might do all for your glory. We ask this, Father, in the name of the one Psalm 24 calls the King of glory, your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in His name. Amen. Beloved, our text this morning is Luke 13, verse 22 through 30. And if you're not there already, I invite you to turn there in a Bible. We pray that the Word of God will ring forth and that its truth will resonate in our lives and radiate from our lives. I'm going to read now, beginning in verse 22. And he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. And they will come from east and west and from north and south and will recline and behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. May God bless the reading of His Word. You know... As a pastor, there are times when I come upon a text I have preached before or one very similar. Um, that has happened 
more than once as we've journeyed through Luke because as you probably know, a lot of the material in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is similar. They are called the, the three synoptic gospels. That, uh, that sin uh, prefix meaning same. A lot of what they have is the same. And years ago I was preaching through the gospel of Mark. And, and so in Luke there have been some times where I've been able to look at old notes that I preached years ago in Mark. And they've been a resource to me as I've prepared for the next week's teaching. In fact... That happened last week as we were going through the parable of the mustard seed. Um, and, and, and it helps. And I say that because Jesus also sometimes used material from what he'd preached before too. Um, what we have just read is evidence of that. The setting for what we have just read is revealed to us in verse 22. We are reminded that Jesus was passing from one city and village to another on his way to Jerusalem. We have, this is not the first time we have seen a phrase like that. Uh, it is a journey that began, and it's not a direct route, but it's a journey that began back in toward the end of Luke 9. He's heading to the cross. He is making that winding journey through the cities, through the towns, through the villages of Judea on his way to Jerusalem because that's where he's going to be crucified. That's where he is going to go to the cross. That's where... He's going to bear the full fury of the wrath of His own Father for the sins of all who will ever repent and believe in Him. And it's no accident either as we look at this that the fact Jesus was teaching is emphasized. We once again see that. We continue to see that as we go through this book, the communication of truth and the explanation of truth is the foundational aspect of Jesus' ministry. We sometimes think of his ministry as the miracles, the feeding of the 5,000, the, the healing of the sick, the raising of the dead even. But all of that is for what? It, it does help people temporarily, but Lazarus did die again. What it did was it proved that what he was saying, what his words were, were true. And it remains true today. And lately what we have been talking about is the kingdom of God, what he has been talking about is the kingdom of God. In verses 18 through 21, we saw last Sunday that the kingdom of God has small beginnings, but will grow prolifically. And so now, as Jesus goes from town to town, perhaps someone who heard Him say that is still following Him here because of the in, the question we get. And it's it's a thoughtful question. It's a pointed question. And it's a provoking question. And it is, are there just a few who are being saved. Are there just a few who are being saved, Jesus? Because you just compared the kingdom of God to a mustard seed. And that's the smallest seed we know of around here. And yet it becomes like a huge tree. But here we are following you, Jesus. And while you have had big crowds before, those big crowds are getting smaller. The number of people actually following you seems to be getting smaller. So are there just a few of us? Are there just a few being saved? That is a pertinent question for first century Israel. It is a pertinent question for 21st century America. And especially for people like us who live, and many of us have been born and raised here in what is called the Bible Belt. It's been called the Bible Belt for a long time. The supposed hotbed of American evangelicalism and revivalism. And yet the tides of secularism seem to be 
and not even seem to be, the tides of secularism are rising and they are crashing down on you and me. They are crashing down on our society. They are crashing down on our culture. They are crashing down on biblical principles, on biblical Christianity being lived out in the world. And we see evidence of this because by and large, across the board, church membership is down, worship attendance is down, Sunday school attendance is down, baptisms are down, evangelism is down, godly living is down, church discipline is down, biblical convictions are down, the knowledge of the scriptures is down. All the result of decades of the kind of religious superficiality that we have been seeing Jesus excoriate the religious establishment of his day for. So are there only a few who are being saved? The question reflects some depth of thought. The question reflects the heart of someone who really was following Jesus Christ. Someone who really had been delivered from his sin or her sin. (coughs) Someone who had been delivered. This question is asked by someone who has been delivered from the assumption of salvation. The assumption of salvation for being a descendant of Abraham. The assumption of salvation for being a good Jew. The assumption of salvation that is the same for so many in the world today, and especially in America, and right here in Moore County, because people are trapped, beloved. They are trapped by the the assumption that they are saved. By, and you can fill in the blank of what they're saved by. Usually the answer is Jesus, but it's tied to something they do. It's tied to something they have done sometime in the past. It's tied to family. It's tied to, to being a member of a church somewhere. Whoever asked this question about only a few being saved had come to realize that salvation is not about being delivered from the Roman Empire. Salvation is not about being fulfilled in life. Salvation is not about having your best life now. Salvation is not about being dissatisfied, being delivered from dissatisfaction with your life circumstances. Salvation isn't about being delivered from poverty. Salvation isn't about getting the American dream. Salvation isn't about your self-esteem. It's about being, and it's not about, it is being delivered from the wrath of God. The wrath of God that abides on you because of your sins. Salvation is being delivered from everlasting hell on the basis of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ in the place of the sinner. He saves the one who repents and believes. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 tells us from what? The wrath to come. There's wrath coming. And you've either been saved from it or you have not. And it all has to do with who do you say Jesus Christ is. But are there only a few who are being saved? Because after three years of healing the sick, after three years of casting out demons, raising the dead, there were only a few true believers. Are there only a few who are being saved? Because after Bethlehem Baptist Church has been here for 181 years, and there are plenty of other churches in our area who have been around for a long time, our community is still, by and large, a spiritual desert. So are there only a few who are being saved? It's enough to make you want to give up. 
but don't. Rather than lose heart, beloved, we've got to remember this is the way it's always been. This is the way it's always been. In fact, if you take away Pentecost, where 3,000 were saved on one day, if you look at the Bible, salvation has never been widespread. When God sent the flood, how many did He save? Eight. When God rained fire and brimstone down on Sodom and Gomorrah, how many did He save? Lot and his two unmarried daughters. The remnant has always been small. Always. The remnant of believers has always been overwhelmingly outnumbered. So were there, are there, only a few who were, only a few who are being saved. Notice that Jesus doesn't answer the question. Because it's not for the questioner. And it's not for us to know how many will be saved. It's not important for us to know how many will be saved. What matters is whether or not you have been. What matters is whether or not you are and will be saved. What matters isn't how many will have faith, but what kind of faith you have. You. So Jesus gives an invitation. And it's not the kind of invitation that has been so abused over the course of of the last two centuries, particularly in America, the kind that is still very common today. Jesus didn't tell the man who asked this question that God lo- to tell everyone that God loves them and has a wonderful plan for their lives. On the contrary, Jesus directed His response to everybody who was there. And what did He say? As if to start His statement off with the word you, He said, you all strive to enter the narrow door. Strive to enter the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Beloved, easy believism, an easy Christianity, that's not what Jesus calls sinners to. An easy Christianity does not exist, beloved. A Christianity by affirmation does not exist. Jesus was calling upon sinners to strive for their salvation. Strive is is from the Greek word agonizomai, from which we get our word agonize. We are to agonize over our salvation. Now, what I mean by that, well, it's true. What What is true? It's true that salvation is solely by the sovereign grace of God. Salvation is solely by the sovereign grace of God. It's true that in John 6, Jesus says, No one comes to me unless the Father draws him. So it's true that salvation is only by the sovereign grace of God. It's true that as we've seen in Luke 10, we saw this in Luke 10, 21 and 22, Jesus said, No one can know the Father except those to who the Son wills to reveal him. Salvation is only by the sovereign grace of God. And it's also true that as Ephesians 2 says, We are dead in our trespasses and sins, but we are saved by the grace of God through faith, and it is the gift of God to us. Salvation is solely by the grace of God. All of that is true, but what is equally true is what Paul told the philosophers on Mars Hill in Acts 17. God says all men everywhere should repent. That's the message. And and actually Jesus said also, Repent and believe in the gospel. 
strive, agonize. It means to fight, to compete, to struggle, and to put it another way, to deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow Jesus. The, the, the Christianity of the masses, beloved, easy believism, worships a small Jesus who demands little and allows you to maintain your life however you want to live it. But the kind of striving faith that Jesus is talking about here, biblical Christianity worships a very big Jesus and makes Him your life. And it's a narrow door. Jesus says in John 10, I am the door. Beloved, Jesus is a narrow door. He's a tight fit. He's just big enough for you. He's not big enough for you to carry all of your baggage with you. You can't take your past. You can't take your ambitions. You can't take your possessions. You can't take your hopes for the future through that door. You can't take even your relationships. And you can't bend that door either. Jesus is not malleable to what you want Him to be. You don't get to decide what you want to believe and not believe about Jesus. You don't get to decide what you get to emphasize and what you don't get to emphasize about Jesus. And that's the thing today. People, they want to say they believe in Jesus. They want to say they're Christians because that's a socially acceptable answer when you ask what someone's religion is. But they want to believe about Jesus what they want to believe about Jesus. And maybe that's you this morning too. And they're not going to be able to. Why? Because their faith wasn't and is not real. Is your faith real this morning? Beloved, their religion was on their own terms. Their religion was superficial. Their religion is not grounded in the Word of God because God is not the sovereign they are. Who is the sovereign of your heart this morning? Is it you or is it God? Who is sitting on the throne of your heart? Well, verse 25... Verse 25, Jesus says, Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us. Beloved, how many are biding their time to enter through the door? We have a a culture that thinks they're going to live forever. We've got to realize this morning that that door can and will be shut. Beloved, Continued rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Continued resistance to His call to repent is a matter of life and death. And it's a matter of actually, a matter of eternal life and eternal death. What we see on TV, you know, we sometimes see television in ads. Something is good for a limited time. You get coupons that are good for a limited time. Well, beloved, the proclamation of the gospel, the command of the gospel is only available to be obeyed for a limited time. Because we are all living on what? On borrowed time. We're living on borrowed time. Remember the first few verses of this chapter? Do you remember in Luke 13 verses 1 through 9 how Jesus is addressing people and people are questioning Him and there were some Galileans who were murdered at the temple by Pontius Pilate. And he mixed the blood of the sacrifices with their blood. And then the, temp, the, the tower of Siloam fell. The point being, we are no, not one of us is guaranteed one more minute on this earth. One more, much less one more day. Beloved, 
we are not permanent residents of this earth. Genesis 6, even God declared that what His Spirit will not strive with man forever and that His days would be numbered. We've seen in Luke 12 that the parable of the rich fool who stored up treasure for himself and what, what is he told? That his, he's a fool. Why? Because that very night his soul will be required of him. In Luke 12, 40, Jesus says, The Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. In Luke 12, 58, we've seen Jesus say that sinners had better settle out of court with the magistrate before it's too late. And we've seen Jesus also say again, Luke 13, Unless you likewise repent, you likewise will also perish. We've probably all had a time in our lives where we needed to go get something. And so we, we headed to the store to pick something up from the store. But the store closed at 9 and we get there at 9.02. And the doors have now been locked. And the lights are off. And we see the employee in the back closing up in the back. And we're like, come on, it's just going to take a minute. And no, we don't get in, do we? How much worse will it be for those who have refused and refused and refused to repent when their time comes? When they think about the eternal blessings in the presence of God, presumptively saying, Lord, open up to us as if He has to obey you. How much worse will the shock and horror be when they realize they aren't getting in Beloved, there are millions and millions of people who are going to find the door closed thinking they have a place in heaven. And some of them may be our neighbors and some of them may live in our houses and there are many of them in our community and some of them could be here this morning. As one pastor and commentator has written, hell will be populated not only by irreligious rejectors of God, but also by those who were outwardly religious and reverently spoke of Him. Hell will be populated by religious people, beloved, but by the superficially religious. By those who did not accept everything Jesus is and nothing He is not. Those who did not define Jesus on His terms, those who tried to define Jesus on their own terms. Hell will be populated by the so-called casual or carnal Christian. Hell will be populated by religious people who really didn't take the Word of God seriously at all. And the Lord will say to them, I do not know where you are from. Or as Jesus put it another time when He preached similarly in Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount, I don't know you. Despite how you might look on the outside, despite how these people looked on the outside, despite the religious things they might do, they had no relationship with Jesus Christ. They did not know Him. He did not know them. Their lives were not united to His. And that's what salvation will always result in. Salvation doesn't just get you a ticket into heaven. Salvation unites your life to Jesus Christ. We've been reading in Romans, and we saw that in Romans 8 this morning. The Spirit of Christ actually indwells us. And Paul in in Colossians 3 verses 1 through 4 writes, Therefore, 
If you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not on the things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Is Christ your life? Is Christ your life? Or is He a component of your life? Is He something you put on your schedule? Or is He your life? Does Christ influence every bit of who you are? Every bit of what you think? Every bit of what you say? Every bit of what you do? Not one of us can say yes 100%. Because we still sin. But is He your life? When they come to the door and find it closed, finding themselves unable to get in, they will be shocked. And what will they do when they're shocked? They will list off all the things they did. They will trumpet their own righteousness. Today, when, 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 when carnal Christians, when casual Christians, when people who don't really take the Word of God seriously but affiliate with Christianity, when you call them on their sin, what do they do? They list off their own list of things that they've done. That's what these people will do when they get to the door and find it closed. We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets, as if those streets really belonged to them. And they will claim that they had a relationship with Jesus based on their own works. So many people do that. And they will talk about how He taught in their streets, how they heard Him speak. It's not enough to hear Jesus speak, beloved. It's not enough to hear the Word of God. Being familiar with Jesus doesn't equal being saved. That's why it's going to hurt for so many who think they're waltzing into the kingdom of God when they find the door shut and they find the Lord saying, I tell you, I do not know you. I do not know where you came from. Depart from me, you evildoers. And that will be every single person who has never repented of their sins in reality, never really entrusted themselves to Jesus, and never been justified, declared God righteous by God, not covered by His righteousness. They're still trying to live by their own righteousness. That will be every single person like that. And there will be church people amongst them. There will be religious people, because that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's looking at us. The scriptures are aimed at us this morning. They were for they, they you know they were more moral than most. They did this, they did that, but they were still sinners who fell short of the glory of God, well short of his standard of perfect righteousness, and they never trusted Jesus with all of themselves. So if they can't go through the door, if the door is shut, closed to them, where will they go? Well, verse twenty eight says, In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. As if being punished for their own sins isn't enough forever. Those who reject Christ are going to have to deal with their remorse and their own shock and their own surprise forever. They will think they were supposed to get into heaven, but instead they will be in hell. And it will be even worse for the religious people because they knew about the gospel. 
And they are going to be judged in accordance with the amount of light they were exposed to. The amount of light they rejected. And that's definitely what it will be like for the Jews that Jesus addresses here. Who thought that they would be with their patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, forever with all the prophets. But instead they are thrown out. They are thrown out. Jesus doesn't just leave. He's throwing them out. Cast out. When they expected to be saved. Because they were Abraham's descendants. For the self-righteous Jews Jesus was directly dealing with. It will be even worse than that. Because who will be there? People from east and west and north and south. Reclining at the table in the kingdom of God. Gentiles. Those they considered worse than dogs. Would know the king. And eat with the king. And drink with the king. And fellowship with the king. While they were shut out. Beloved. In the same way. I suspect a great many members of American churchianity. Will likewise be aghast in hell. When they are shut out of the kingdom of God. But see people. Who maybe don't look like them. And maybe don't talk like them. But know the Lord. And are allowed to enter through the narrow door. Because they have striven to do so. God is sovereign. And salvation is only and completely by His grace. It's that way today. It's always been that way. And it will always be that way. But today, Jesus still says, strive. Are you striving to enter through the narrow door? Are you striving to be one who consistently, who constantly repents of your sins? Are you striving to entrust yourself, all that you are, all that you have, all that you ever will be, all of your ambitions, all of your traditions, all of your preconceived notions, all of your possessions, everything? Are you striving to trust in Christ? Are you striving to not simply be religious? but to know the Word of God and live by the Word of God? Or are you putting yourself first? Because some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. The Jews received the gospel first, but it would be Gentiles who would receive it in greater numbers. And there will come a day when all Israel will be saved, but the last became first, and in the same way, beloved, on a more personal level, are you (coughs) putting... Yourself first, or are you subjugating yourself to the Lordship of Christ and saying, He's first, I'm last. He must increase, I must decrease. God sent His Son into the world. Jesus lived a perfectly sinless life. But then He went to the cross and He bore the penalty for the sins of of all who will ever repent and believe in Him. He, was die- he died, he, he was buried. But then He was raised on the third day. Why? So that all those who do believe, having been forgiven of their sins, something has to happen as a result of that. What happens is we are given the free gift of everlasting life. But the free gift of His grace does not come apart from the grace of us striving. The grace of living by the Word of God. 
the grace of living, of striving to live under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And this morning, beloved, can you say you are striving? Are you certain you will enter through the narrow door? Are you certain you will fit? Are you certain you will not be shut out? Because God desires you to be certain. God desires all who will ever believe to now submit themselves to Him lest you be shut out of an unexpectedly closed door. Make yourself last and Jesus will be pleased to make you first. Come to Him on His terms and you can and you will recline at His table in His kingdom. Let's pray. Father, it's only by Your grace that any of us will not hear the scariest words ever. Depart from me. I pray this morning, if there are any here who don't know You, that by Your grace You might give them life, spiritual life, that they might see Jesus and rest in Him. I pray, Father, that You might fill this place with people who are striving to enter the narrow door. Make us a godly people who agonize to be godly, to be Christ-like, to be like Jesus. Father, don't allow any of us to rest in superficial religion, but cause us by Your grace to hate sin and to be absolutely restless until we're following You with our whole hearts. Even now, Father, I pray Your Holy Spirit will convict us of all sin and compel us to come to Jesus, in whose name we ask all of this, for His and for Your eternal glory. Amen.